make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander. I'm the host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. Thrilled to be here today with my special guest, Madison Hatfield. Let me tell you about Madison because you're going to love her. Madison is a writer, actor, and filmmaker based in Atlanta. Her debut feature, Pageant Material, co-written with Jono Mitchell, premiered at the 2019 Atlanta Film Festival, and their award-winning short, Jenna Gets an Abortion, premiered in 2020. In 2021, she co-wrote, produced, and acted in the feature films, Miles from Nowhere, and Courtney Gets Possessed, which she also co-directed, in addition to writing and producing three shorts, including Post Citrus, her solo directorial debut, Miles from Nowhere, and Post Citrus premiered at the 2022 Atlanta Film Festival. She and Mitchell are adapting a to-be-announced queer Yay for queer YA novel for Walden Media. As an actor, she has been featured on Atlanta Dynasty and the upcoming Showtime series, The First Lady. Oh my God, you're the first lady. That's amazing. I'm watching that right now. She is represented by the Gotham Group and for literary and Stuart talent as a performer. Welcome, Madison. Thank you so much for having me. I never heard my bio read back to me like that. That was, uh, that was exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great? And I love reading the bios for the guests and you get to have that moment of like, look at all these things I've accomplished. (laughs) I have, I have done, none of that was a lie. I have done all of it. (laughs) Yeah. This is so exciting. You're a talented multi hyphenate. Um, and so inspiring inspired by what you do and your creativity and your journey. Um, and full disclosure, I've read you, right? So yeah. for everybody who is on the, uh, who's listening, I am a huge Madison Hatfield fan. I love her writing. She has such an incredible voice and you're a woman of vision. You have significant vision and insight, and you bring such a perspective that's so important to this industry. And I really want to dive in and talk to you about that too. There's so many places we can go. (laughs) So I'm going to start with a question that I often teach my students to start with, because I think it'll give us a nice opening to where you are. Madison, what are you the most passionate about right now? Oh my gosh. Um, 
I think right now I am the most passionate about finishing the films that we started last year. <laughs> I'm very passionate about the idea of finishing Courtney Gets Possessed, uh, which was the second feature film. We we shot two feature films back to back. So we shot Miles from Nowhere um, in 11 days. We took three days off and then we shot Courtney Gets Possessed in 11 days. And it was the hardest thing that uh, we've ever done creatively. And it'll just feel so good for that process to feel finally uh, complete. Um, but, you know, that's the that's the thing about filmmaking is it's, you know, you write the script and you're like, whew, through the hard part. And then you get into pre-production and it's a time to shoot and you're like, whew through the hard part. And then you get into production, you finish production and you're like, whew, done with the hard part. And then comes post and you're like, oh no, this is the hard part <laughs> because there's just a lot of wait, waiting. You have to really exercise your patience. You're working with a whole new team of people. Um, but yeah, I think that I'm a, I'm a big fan of finishing things. I'm not the kind of person who starts a script and doesn't finish it or starts a film and doesn't finish it. And so, yeah, when you ask me that, it's not very glamorous or sexy, but I'm ready to be done with post-production. You're passionate about finishing. There's nothing wrong with that. I feel like this is an industry where it's so hard to finish anything. Another draft, another draft, you know, another yeah. version, another cut. It's like so tough to get something completed. It really can yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, that's awesome. Love a finish line. Let's talk about your journey as an actress, because I was introduced to you as a writer and like, look at these incredible shows that you're doing. How did you get into acting and what do you love about it? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm sort of a poster child for why it's important to have arts in school, because I certainly was a kid who loved to make people laugh and loved to perform. And, um, you know, when I got to high school, my, my high school didn't have a drama program and we, we didn't have a stage at the school even. So there was a math teacher who would like direct shows and maybe we would get to perform it if we could find a theater to let us do it. And I knew that I loved that. And, um, I went to Davidson college to study biology. Um, but given that it was such a small school, I was able to be a part of the theater program, despite being a, a science major. And I loved that too. <laughs> um, but you know, I'd never, I'd never met an actor growing up. Um, Atlanta is very different now than it used to be. The, the film scene is something that really developed, um, when I was sort of away at college. And then since I've been back. And so I never met a writer, you know, a screenwriter, I'd never met a film producer and neither had my parents importantly. And so it was not a, um, a career path that felt viable to, to me and to my family. And so I, uh, majored in biology. I became a high school science teacher. That was something I was really passionate about. It was something I did for four years and absolutely loved. Um, but in an effort to make friends, uh, outside of the school, I started, uh, taking improv classes and, and really getting into the improv and sketch comedy scenes here in Atlanta. Um, and I started to realize how good I was at that and, and how much I enjoyed making people laugh and, I'd been teaching um, about four years and sort of a, a situation came about where my husband who worked at the same school was offered a promotion, but it meant that I couldn't stay. And it was this really sort of tense moment, um, but it sort of made me think maybe this is the push that I needed to try this other 
version of my life that I think was always living in my guts, but that I hadn't, I hadn't felt was, was possible for me. And so, um, I got a job at an independent bookstore, uh, which is much more flexible. Uh, and they were really supportive of what I wanted to do. And I jumped into, you know, acting classes. Um, and probably, you know, a few years after that I signed with, uh, I had one agent and then, um, in 2019, I signed with Stuart talent, which is a really amazing, um, office. They've got, they've got branches in Atlanta, New York, LA and Chicago. Um, so they've been incredibly supportive and I will say that because of my type, um, and obviously the people listening to this can't, um, see my body, but I, you know, I describe myself as a a fat woman, a fat actor. Um, and the parts for me, um, casting directors and producers tend to have a smaller imagination about me than I do. And so, um, a huge part of becoming a filmmaker and getting into independent production was, saying yes to myself first so that it would be easier for other people to say yes to me so that their imaginations to could expand to fit the breadth of what I offer. Um, and that's what's happened, right? I, I really spent the first few years of my career um, writing roles for myself, putting myself in things. And then now, uh, because those are projects that people can see and that's footage that people can watch. They're like, Oh yeah, I guess. Yeah. Let's, let's put her in town. Let's put her on TV. Um, and so, you know, I, it, it made me really proud to write those TV credits, um, on there for that bio because, um, they just premiered like within the past month. Um, and these are, that was my first time being on TV after doing this, you know, pretty consistently for about five years. So it's a long game and it's up and down. And, you know, I I'm so grateful to writing and filmmaking because it allows me to feel creatively fulfilled outside of auditioning. And then on the very, very rare times that you are asked to come to someone else's set, you know, if that was my only way to feel like an artist and feel creative, I probably would be going a little bit stir crazy, but, you know, writing and filmmaking is really great for me. But I, you know, I also tell actors, if you aren't called to write, if you aren't called to make your own content, don't, it's sort of this, advice that's given out like candy right now, but it is so hard to make films. So if it speaks to you, if it calls to you, absolutely. I, I, I would love to have as many filmmakers in the world as possible, but the notion of making things just for the sake of making things for your resume career, you know, to, to have footage, you can always find somebody who's working on something that you can be a part of in the ways that you want to be a part of and not have to put your money and time and energy on the line for, the kind of work that doesn't actually fulfill you. Um, yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah. You know, um, you're the first person in the industry to educate me about this side of inclusion that you called fat gap. Will you talk about that? Will you tell us about it? Yes. The fat gap, uh, is a, a, a term that I think I coined. I've I never heard did. anyone else use it. <laughs> um, copyright pending. Um, basically, the, for me, the, the fat gap is the gap that exists between the portion of people who are watching film and television um, that are fat and the proportion of characters that we see on TV that are fat. Um it's an enormous chasm between those two things. We, we, you know, and as a fat person and someone who has been fat my whole life, you know, I feel that I can speak very intelligently on 
how few fat people there are, um, in media because I was looking for them. Um, I was always looking for myself and it was very rare that I was seeing myself. And when I was, we're talking about small side characters at best, maybe a best friend sort of character. If we're a lead, our fatness is intrinsic to our storyline. It is about the fact that we're fat. We cannot just simply exist on screen as a fat person. So for me, when I talk about creating roles for myself, I created roles that you could create for anybody. Um, and I just put myself in them and don't say a thing about my size. We have a film that is literally titled Jenna gets an abortion. And I think the most revolutionary thing about that film is that I am the lead and my weight is not discussed. Like that is the wildest thing about it. And, and abortion is in the title. So, um, (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I am really committed to, at the very least talking about it and, and, you know, going into general meetings, this is something that I talk about pretty much every single time. And, you know, Kaya, I think a lot of folks are like you, it's just not something they ever thought about, but I can guarantee that every fat kid and fat teenager and fat adult has thought about it because I think like any human being on earth, we are looking for ourselves on screen. And unfortunately for fat people, when we see ourselves, it is so often disappointing. It is so often just soaked in anti-fatness and sort of a, this person needs to change for some reason. And, um, I just, as someone who lives life fat, (laughs) I can tell you that I, I don't think about it all the time, you know, and that took work because the world wants me to think about it all the time. But once you can get to that place, like we just get to live and we can love people and have sex with people and, you know, have scenes where we're eating and it's not like this disgusting, you know, like binge fest, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me how, how little authentic representation we have. And I, I have set it as a personal goal of mine to talk about it and do what I can from my own corner with my own projects to uh, close the gap. I mean, that's all, that's all I want to do. I, I love that about you. I love that mission. And I've gone on to broadcast you and your mission <laughs> to others, you know, who are around me, some of my EP friends and others. Where I'm like, this is something we should be talking about and focusing on and considering, you know, because I love, I love the audience, you know, for myself, for representation, like, okay, or I'm a middle-aged white woman, like who cares, but I'm also bi and queer yeah. and lived in the closet for a long time. And the bi erasure, you know, of our whole, you know, society was also strong inside of me, internalized. And um, seeing myself represented on screen, the few times we actually see those characters on screen has just made me weep. So from that perspective, I know what inclusion is so healing when you go, oh, my God, like, and it's a celebration of me. It's not somebody trying to change me or transform me or put me through some kind of, you know, ugly duckling, you know, transformation or something like that. But to actually say, like, you're a real human being with uh, you can be multifaceted. You don't have to just focus on this one element. So, yeah, kudos to you. And let's keep spreading that. (laughs) I'd love to see more of those characters on screen. You know, it's like so meaningful. Um, It's just so meaningful. Um, yeah, I think even about my, my high school, my best friend in high school, uh, was, was a big girl 
And we never talked about her weight. Like we were interested in vampires and we spent a lot of time talking about vampires and werewolves <laughs> and like playing D and D and stuff like that. But like, who cares? We were like shopping for rad boots and, you know, going to the mall together. Cause I grew up in the eighties and nineties. So <laughs> yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's not something that we, necessarily are thinking about as, as a fat person, I don't just wake up and like, let's go be fat today. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm off to just go be today. And the only time I think about it is when it's sort of thrown in my face with diet culture and me and, you know, diet culture is really everywhere. Um, but I, I've done the best that I can to, you know, block the ads that I get and, and not watch things that have advertisements that make me feel, um, reminded of, uh, you know, a life that I used to live. Cause I certainly dieted a lot as a kid and I, I carry a lot of guilt for what I did to that version of myself. Um, thinking that I had to, um, I feel really lucky to have gotten to a place and I would love to help bring other people to a place where we understand the forces behind what made us feel like we had to change. Um, and that they are mostly about making money and perpetuating some really hurtful, um, stereotypes that are more wrapped up in colonialism and racism and xenophobia than you can ever imagine. I mean, you know, our sort of obsession with thinness is not something that we really ever examine. And, uh, I encourage anybody that I talk to, cause I'm certainly not a scholar, but there's a lot of incredible scholarship about why we vilify fat the way that we do, because it's not just, you know, we get to, we have a lot of people who frame it in terms of health, but in actuality, there's been a moralization of bodies, right? And some are good and some are bad. And mine is across the board, always bad. Um, and that's messed up, right? My, my body doesn't actually have anything to do with the kind of person that I am, but fatness is really, really wrapped up in a lot of stuff. So anyway, we could do a whole nother podcast about that. And you would want a different guest who was a researcher, but all this to say, um, yeah, I, I, I love talking about it. And I love sharing that with people because again, it's just, it's something that we take for granted all the time that thin is good. Fat is bad. Fat should become thin to be good. And if right. thin becomes fat, it is, it has become worse to become bad. And that is all um, can I say bad words on this? Oh yeah. No, we're I good. was going to say bullshit. That is all bullshit. <laughs> I probably already cussed and I didn't even realize it, but that time I did, uh, catch myself. So uh, <laughs> oh, me. I have a clean rating on this podcast, but I think that's because no one's actually listening to it, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding at Apple or wherever else you know, the audience loves it. I bring on comics and stuff too. It's like, we have to, yes. we have to, we have to. We have to. We have to. So I want you to tell us about the characters that you've played recently. Um, first ladies in Atlanta. Talk to us about these women. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, the first role that I booked on TV was the first lady. And it's so funny. It's going to end up being like the third or fourth to actually come out. Um, cause they've, they've taken their time with it, which is great. Um, I got to be a, um, and I don't, I, I don't think I'll get in trouble because I, my episode hasn't aired yet, but, um, I got to be in the, uh, Betty Ford segment of the show. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer plays Betty Ford, yes. um, getting to act with Michelle Pfeiffer, um, was truly, uh, such a, a life highlight. Um, but basically I'm just one of several women that, um, have been brought into the East wing of the white house to help, um, campaign to ratify the ERA. So we sort of show up a few times throughout the episode 
episode um, that's sort of about her fight with that. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, I, mean, I didn't realize that Betty Ford was so involved with trying to ratify the ERA. It just took us forever to get that done, too. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't think it's been done, actually. It has. If I'm, it has. Oh, it has. Oh, that's yeah, right. It has. It was like 2019. Yeah. Um, yes, very, very recently. That's through right. without a you know mention. <laughs> it was like a couple days in the New York Times. I was like, oh, yeah. this really happened. And then like, you know, crickets. Oh, because we don't focus on the good things. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, she was, you know, and I think she's a really cool, um, first lady for them to focus on because she was really outspoken and a really, um, sort of divisive figure within the white house and, and within America. So, um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm very excited to, to see how that comes together. Um, Dynasty, which is uh, on the CW, uh, a lot of CW shows shoot down here in Atlanta. It is a reboot of the 80s show. It has all the drama that you want it to. I got to play, you know, a single sort of comedic scene um, playing a sort of terrible worker who's been fired and now rehired and then gets fired again. Um, but I loved Atlanta. Atlanta is one of my favorite shows, obviously, as someone who grew up in Atlanta. Um, I love the celebration. It is a black Atlanta. Um, I love Atlanta. Donald yeah. Glover is a genius. It's such a good show. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, you know, the kind of thing where I, I got to set and realized that I was in an episode that didn't have any of the main cast in it, which like sort of, you know, you, you show up to set and you often don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, especially at the level of actor that I am, <laughs> you know, it's like, here's, here's your stuff. And it's like, ah, oh, okay. Sign this, you know, go to go fit hair, you know, you're, you're running around and, um, so I realized, oh, like none of the, none of the characters are in this, but I was so lucky The the main character of my episode, which is, um, episode four of this season, it aired a few weeks ago, uh, is Justin Bartha, um, who is, um, an actor sort of best known for, uh, being Doug in the hangover and Riley Poole in national treasure. And he's done some really wonderful projects since then, but he's a huge fan of the show. And he, um, was so gracious to me and so generous to me. And it's a friendship that has endured past that, um, past that episode. And it's like, Oh, you know what? Like I was feeling so many emotions about not getting to meet Donald Glover and Brian Tyree Henry. And then, you know, I end up meeting somebody who was, um, such a natural fit in, in just my constellation of, of friends and, and people that I, that I love and admire. And so, um, I'm so proud of the work that he does in the episode. He really carries it all the way through and does so with a lot of, um, restraint and nuance. And, um, I got to play his coworker who is openly terrible. Uh, she's, you know, racist, um, and just, but also weirdly like the comedic relief of the episode. So it was really cool. I show up like five or six times throughout the episode and um, I'm really, really proud of how it all came together and directed by Hiro Mirai, who is um, one of the best directors working right now. Um, and he, I've heard, loves the episode, which is great. Uh, but I remember like I showed up and, you know, I'm running around. I've just been given my sides that day. I didn't get the script ahead of time. And they <laughs> are like, okay, go to set. And Hero's like, okay, we're going to rehearse. Justin's right there. And I was like, um, okay, wh what scene are we doing? <laughs> and he was like, oh, <laughs> you know, they don't realize that no one's telling you anything. But, you know, we read through it a few times. I was able to learn my lines very quickly and, and get it done. And um, yeah, I, I, 
I'm a big fan of, you know, if you don't know what's going on, ask the question. I would rather ask and, uh, and be told than try to feel too cool for school and just guess what I'm supposed to be doing. So it worked out uh, really, really well. And I'm super proud. That's season three, episode four. You can go watch it anytime. It is a perfect little anthology episode. Um, even if you've never seen the show, I think you can get something out of it. So. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm so happy for you. And all <laughs> fantastic news. And I have a lot of writers who listen to the show, who follow me on Twitter and other places. And one of the questions that comes up a lot is like, how do you get repped? What was your journey like to getting repped? And I know that you're a writer and fantastic writer. What was your journey like to getting representation? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I feel like I'm an example of the person that's like, Oh, that was how you did it. You know, everybody's, <laughs> everybody's, everybody's like journey, <laughs> very, very different. Um, but for me, um, so the first project that my collaborator, John O. Mitchell and I wrote together was a feature called pageant material. We premiered that at Atlanta film festival in 2019, which was like in April. And then in May of 2019, the governor of our state, um, Brian Kemp signed a heartbeat bill into law, which was an essential ban on abortion in the state of Georgia, um, that, um, angered and depressed and demoralized me, uh, deeply. And I was in, um, a pretty dark place about it. And, you know, Jono encouraged me. He's like, there's always something we can do, um, from our corner of the world. And so we decided that we were going to write, um, a road trip, dark, abortion rom-com, uh, to, um, you know, sort of illustrate that what governor Kemp did was certainly not a reflection of all Georgians. And in particular, it was not at all a reflection of the film industry in Georgia, because we were being hit with a lot of boycotts, a lot of calls for boycotts. Um, when in actuality, the film industry is actually a huge part of why Georgia is getting pushed further and further into safe blue territory, um, which, you know, for me personally is something that, that I've, um, been hoping for and working towards. So all this to say, we started writing Jenna gets an abortion in May, 2019. We shot it in September, 2019, and we had rented a theater to premiere it in April, 2020. Uh, and obviously oh my God. didn't happen. Uh, so we had to get creative. We decided, you know what? We don't know how long this is going to last. I'm not going to keep pushing this premiere. Jono used to work at Adult Swim and he worked in the streams. And so he had some knowledge of how to stream things online. So we put together an online streaming premiere on Twitch. Um, and, you know, we had... I think it was like a thousand devices tune in for it. So it was so many more people at that premiere than we would have been able to have in Atlanta. That's, especially, that's amazing. As special as that would have been, it was like, oh, this is cool. Like people from all over were able to be a part of it. And we partnered with the Planned Parenthood down here. And we had this like pink carpet thing where people could use that hashtag and they could dress up in their houses and their pictures sort of popped up in a slideshow, like pre-show. Oh. I mean, it was really, really cool. Amazing. So, um, you know, we, we put together a short that was 23 minutes long, which is long for a short, but it, if you ever watch it and you can, it's free online. Um, it is, it feels like a feature that's just been really heavily compressed. So we really couldn't compress it any further. Um, so, and with the pandemic, you know, we didn't know what was happening with festivals. So we do this premiere online and then we decided, you know what, screw it. Just put it on Vimeo. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> let, let the art live. And, um, <laughs> A few days after that, I got a call from a picture book author that I had met through working at the bookstore. 
she... I used to manage a bookstore, by the way. We have a, ah! yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love independent, a little indie bookshop. Yes. Independent bookstore, little shop of stories. Look it up. It is a wonderful children's bookstore down here. I was, um, I did a lot of the author events. So I did a lot of moderating and, you know, communicating with authors and their publicists. So I've made several author friends through my time there. And one of them called me, um, she, uh, and her husband, Tony Dieterlitzi are repped by Gotham group. Um, he is the author of the Spiderwick Chronicles, which they have already adapted. And I think they are adapting again. Um, and she was like, I watched your movie. I loved it. I hope you don't mind. I sent it to Ellen Goldsmith Bain, who is the owner of Gotham. And uh, she really loves it. Can you put together your materials? And I was like, oh my God. So uh, all of a sudden, Jono and I have like 12 hours to put together everything we have um, to send over to, um, you know, I have, I've really loved uh, working with Gotham's. You guys already know that I work with them. And so, you know, they're a, they're a company that represents a lot of people, um, especially on the book side that I really admire. So anyway, yes. one of the few a... women owned management yes. companies also in the industry, I yes. want to highlight that they have a huge repu- uh, rep, great reputation, um, for literature, um, for, you know, the, yeah. the two sides of IP and screenwriting and loving their authors. I hear great. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're there. And that was huge for me too, to know that it was um, owned by a woman um, who, you know, and of course, because Jenna spoke to her, I was like, oh, this is a woman who I'm sure we align in a lot of um, meaningful ways. And so, um, yeah, we, you know, we kind of sent our materials over and, you know, it was months of sort of like waiting and following up and going back and forth. And, you know, we finally got an email from her that was like, you know, we love Jenna gets an abortion. We're a little torn on the other materials that you have, but let's hop on a call. And so Jono and I get ready for this call and we think we're about to fight for our lives. You know, it's, it's our time to show that we are worth having on their team. (laughs) We hop on and it's her and her, um, you know, co-owner, uh, and they're like, yeah, so here's the strategy we're going to go with. Can you guys send us a list of all the producers that you like? And, you know, here's, here's what we're thinking. We'd love to use Jenna as a calling card. And like Jono and I, we couldn't be together at the height of the pandemic, but we're, (laughs) we found out later we're each on the other, you know, end of the line, like what is going on right now? You know, we came in here ready to fight and they have like already decided that they were going to take a chance on us. And they were like, we, you know, we know that you're, that you're new to this and we want to support you. We want to make sure we're sending you to the right people. And, you know, something that I will always remember is that on that call, they said, if anybody is anything other than kind, professional, warm to you, we want to know that because that's not only someone that we wouldn't want to work with for you, but also someone we would consider, you know, not working with in the future. And as a very green creator, that kind of assurance um, really made me feel so safe and so cared for. And the fact that they were already thinking about it and it wasn't something that I was going to have to sort of bring up when it, when it became a problem. And I will say so far, all the people that we have met with and worked with have been 
absolutely lovely. And we've never felt like we were being taken advantage of or treated as less than because, you know, we don't have sheets worth of credits or whatever it might be. You know, Jenna gets an abortion is what they send out for Jono and I as a, here's what this team can do. Um, and so we're really positioned as a writer director team and we can also be split up, right? Like Jono is a really gifted director. He's directed features on his own. So he's ready to be pitched for that kind of work. I am more of the writer. So I get pitched for writing jobs on my own. Um, and then as a team together, I think there is something attractive to production companies about, Oh, you can just give it to them and they'll just do the whole thing. Um, so anyway, it's been a really cool, very flexible, uh, arrangement that we have. We work with Lindsay Williams. He's, um, one of the, I think he's a co-owner. These are the things that I should know. Um, and then Nick McCabe, who was a junior uh, manager when we met him and he has since been promoted, which is always really exciting. Um, and they, they work, um, with us in, in a way that I I'm, I'm really proud of. Um, they listen to us and they, um, have a really strong sense of what we offer and what we want to do. Um, and that's really the best that you can ask for, uh, in a team. That's fascinating. You know, tracing your journey back to the initial impulse to write Jenna gets an abortion, which was you described coming from, you know, a dark place, a place that I have identified in my own life that I kind of have nicknamed productive rage, because when I get really enraged about something, like I have to go do something with that energy and like throw myself into, you know, a creative angle. Cause otherwise yeah. the rage will just burn me up. Yeah. And, uh, and so there you are, you know, you find your outlet for your productive rage and it's Jenna gets an abortion and you're not going to get a chance to the pandemic hits. You're not even going to get a chance to have the screening and then you pivot and you do the online screening and so much then your whole career is like this ripple effect from that moment that's yeah. amazing yeah it's one of those wild like and and it and it's an interesting thing to talk about because obviously i wish the pandemic had never ever ever happened it's been a Absolutely. horrible horrible time but it you know i think that it forced a lot of people to to pivot to rethink and so rather than i would never say that i'm grateful for the pandemic i am grateful for having a partner who is uh quick thinking and creative and when we come up against any sort of obstacle uh we can find our way you know over under around or through it and in this case, the obstacle was the pandemic and the way that we pivoted ended up being um, a really powerful shift uh, for us and for what it meant for the rest of our career. Um, and the silver it, lining of that dark yeah. storm. Yeah, exactly. you know, the dark storm of the pandemic. What that silver lining, I think, for all of us has been, what do I care about? What yeah. matters to me? Yeah. And, um, you know, what what do I need to put my focus on? Because life is short. And mm -hmm. Um, what stories matter to us and what, where are we finding meaning in our lives and also extricating ourselves from anything that's not life enriching in right. some way, um, right. has become so important. I, I know I've certainly done a lot of that decision-making and that most of the people, my friends have also been doing the same thing from moving house to going, I don't want to live in the city anymore. In fact, one of my friends is an estate attorney and I was chatting with him. Oh, how are you doing? How's the pandemic been going? Um, and, uh, just asking him, you know, really also about his health. Cause he was one of my friends who had a very strange accident and that he survived mm -hmm. a parachute jump in the army where his parachute didn't open. 
uh, hit the ground, bounced 100 feet in the air, broke every bone in his body and lived. He was hospitalized for a really long time, but like he's ambulatory. He's fine. He has neck pain and whatnot. But I was kind of like, how's he doing? <laughs> you know, I need to check in on him in the pandemic. I hope you time. check in on him every day. How is he doing day <laughs> like, to day? He is the sweetest man. I was like, how's it going? He's an attorney, a state attorney. How's your practice going? He goes, well, you know, the thing about the pandemic so far is that most everybody I know has realized they don't want to be married to this person anymore that they've been married to. And they've had to expand their state attorney practice to do divorce attorney work wow. because he's like, I'm just, we're so full of divorces. And uh, so I was like, thanks for, and I don't feel sorry for myself anymore for being single during the pandemic. I was for a while though, full of self-pity. And I was like, well, at least I'm not married to the wrong person. You know, that would be worse. <laughs> that would be way worse. Yeah. That would be way worse. So yeah, looking at, looking for those silver linings. And um, yeah. I'm passionate about that too. I'm, you know, strong Democrat, uh, very blue and you know fortunate enough to be living in California where mm-hmm. a lot of people share my values the industry obviously being really democratic and very blue mm-hmm. um you know human rights is so important to us and the types of stories we want to show and in the midst of the pandemic we have black lives matter mm-hmm. i think there's a lot more focus in the industry uh, on the importance of inclusion and diversity and especially in front of the camera more representation yeah. i mean i think we can do even better but i'm at least glad that we're starting you know to do better now yeah yeah it it feels um you know you want to make sure people are putting their money where their mouth is and you want to see people walking the walk in addition to talking the talk but um yeah it's it's you know i think i think we see it you know i'm i'm fortunate to live in atlanta atlanta is sort of a a, a really central hub, uh, for black art. And, um, I've always sort of thought the, the notion of Atlanta as a secondary market always smacked a little bit of racism, um, because it has been such a primary market for black film and television for so long. Um, but I would love, I would love to see the kind of, um, you know, support of black artistry that we see in Atlanta. I would love to see that reflected in LA and in New York. Um, because yeah, the work, the work being done down here, um, is, is really phenomenal. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm a proud Atlanta creator, um, and to, to be in community with, you know, all the people who are here, but, but in particular, um, you know, I'm really inspired by, by many of the black creators who I know have had to overcome things that I would never understand to be where they are. Um, and they're crushing it. (laughs) They're so inspiring. So inspiring. I mean, we have a distance to cover too, with gender inclusion. Um, you know, just on Twitter yesterday, a couple threads going out about like, where are the stories about women in midlife Mm -hmm. on screen? Mm -hmm. There's this huge drop off after 40, you know, and, and again, those were not just all moms, you know, where's the enrichment of those stories. And my own brand professionally writing and producing, I've really focused on adventurous women because as a kid growing up, I was identified with, you know, all the boys on screen, the black stallion, you know, I loved these adventurous boys and I was looking for those, you know, the stories of the girls and we kind of just had Pippi Longstocking when I was Mm. growing up. It was like no one else. And so I, that's that place for me of the gap of like, you know, there, there are so many rad uh, women, especially from history, you know, like we'd had a great uh, movie about Amelia Earhart and there are so many others, you yeah. know, that archetype of uh, rad 
badass, adventurous women. And I love them. I love their stories. And we don't see many of them on screen. It's another area of erasure of like showcasing um, the strengths of women and the minds of women in addition to like, oh, she has to be a size four. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Under 40, size four. That's all all we look at these days, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) um, So what's next for you? What is next for me? Um, so an interesting adaptation that you can't talk about. That's killing me. I want to ask. Yeah, you. yeah. So we're we're um, we have finished um, a, a draft of that that they were really happy with, um, and it's now time to look for a director. So my my partner is pitching. Is um, it a feature? It is a feature. Oh, it's yep. A so it's a feature adaptation of a queer YA book, um, and we absolutely loved it. Um, one of these funny things where like in August of 2020, we, um, saw the, um, announcement of the cover in entertainment weekly and, and saw a synopsis of it. And Jono texted me, he was like, did they write this book for me? You know, like, did like, this is, I want this This is the perfect book. And we asked Gotham a few months later, like, Hey, what's going on with this book? We would love to explore getting the rights to it. They're like, Oh, sorry. Somebody's already got it. It's like, Oh, that's okay. And then a couple months after that, Hey, uh, (laughs) Walden is taking pitches on this book. And they're like, that book that we asked about. And they're like, yeah, they want to talk to you. And in part of our pitch, we were able to take a screenshot of that text from August, 2020 and be like, we've been thinking about this for a long time. And I I think that went a long way in, um, getting us that job. Uh, cause again, like the first yes is really hard because you're asking somebody to take a chance on you. And while, I'm incredibly confident in, in my ability as a writer and John and I's abilities as co-writers and, and writer directors, that confidence does not a IMDB credit make, you know, like it, it, there is a, there's a paperwork element to this. And so for a, a major studio like Walden to say, you know what? Yeah give it to them. Um, it's going to make everything else from here on out, uh, so much simpler, uh, because other companies can say, Oh, well, if, if Walden bought it, they were like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You can give it to them. Um, so we've, we've got, um, honestly, a couple other things that have just sort of sprung up recently that are obviously, uh, very, um, infant, uh, in their (laughs) development. So, um, I wouldn't want to say anything except that this, this season has been why, I mean, starting beginning of April when my Atlanta episode came out and then we're in the midst of Atlanta film festival right now. Like I premiered my short three days ago. Um, and we premiered our feature two days ago. Like it's, it is all just, and then, you know, we're getting these emails and (laughs) new meetings and new calls. And, you know, it, it sort of is, is feeling like, okay, we spent a really long time planting seeds and toiling in our garden. And I think it's almost time to harvest, right? Like it's, it, it definitely feels like we're getting closer to, where we would like to be. And I will tell you that my bar is very low. I need to pay my bills and I am chasing delight. And those are the two things that I am after. And that means that my bar for success is very, very manageable. Um, But I also understand that by 
booking projects on a larger level, it allows more flexibility. It allows for more respect. It allows for more opportunity to be heard and communicate with people who can help make sure that the career that I have and that Jono has and that we have together is in alignment with the stories that we want to tell. Um, and I'm feeling so hopeful about the future. And again, by, by keeping delight in mind and just, you know, sort of the bare necessities of please let me keep my house. Please let me be able to buy groceries. <laughs> you know, like if that's, if that's what I'm after, there are just so many ways that I can be fulfilled and, and continue to live a life telling stories. And, um, yeah. And, and we have plans to shoot two more features later this year. So, you know what, that's still going to, um, but it, it's, it's really cool to be talking to people at some of the highest levels of this industry who are seeing Jenna gets an abortion are seeing some of the other work that we're doing, reading Harriet the first and thinking, oh yeah, let's give them a chance. So I love that. Pay my bills, chase delight. That's so <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> they're, they're all like, we're going to get this put on our wall. <laughs> Um, And having read you, one of the things I love about Harriet, because that's a script that I read of yours, Mm. um, is you write a protagonist and you are living a proof of this protagonist of being really true to yourself, Mm. that you're being really true to yourself. She wrote a character who has to fight to be really true to herself. And I I love that theme. And I I love hearing about how it's playing out in your life. And that being really true to yourself um, seems to be what is bringing your harvest. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I'm so, um, grateful for, I was raised in a house where, um, being myself was encouraged. Um, and I am a, I was a weird kid who became a weird adult. Uh, and, uh, I've, I've always struggled to be someone that I'm not, that doesn't sit naturally with me, um, trying to be a different version of myself, which I've of course done as we all have, uh, has never, um, made me feel like I was chasing delight. (laughs) And I, I'm really proud of my growing ability to say no to the things that don't speak to me. No is a really scary word, um, in this industry, it's something that gets thrown at us all the time, but when we are given the opportunity to say it, it can be really hard. Um, but I also, I feel it in my gut. I feel in my gut when a project isn't right for me or isn't right for us. I feel in my gut when the story that we're telling isn't quite in alignment with where it needs to be. And so, um, being able to say no to what doesn't serve the very reasonable goals <laughs> that I have. Um, you know, it's, it's important. And, and, you know, I, I do commercials, right? Like there are things that I do that exist outside of my, <laughs> you know, heart, uh, singing. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, you know, a part of the, the being an artist, like I don't have another job. This is what I do. And so, uh, I do say yes to, you know, AT&T commercials, which will pay me very, very well. Do I leave that set feeling like I just changed the world? Of course not, but it changes my world in the short term to be able to continue living my financial life as I want to. So I guess, yeah. Yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with that. You can Robin hood AT&T all day, every day, yes. let them pay you well and contribute to the artistic fund of Madison Hatfield. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. Like, so yeah, the it's, world it's, is a better place. No, I, yeah, it, that it's, saying, it's saying no to what doesn't align with you um, when you are in a position to be able to say no. And it's saying yes to yourself over and over and over again. And like I was saying with acting, right, because I said yes to myself, it made it easier for other people to say yes to me. You are demonstrating how it is possible for you to be um you know, welcomed in, um, because you, you opened the door for yourself first in, in whatever way you were able to. So, uh, yeah, say no to what you want to say yes to you. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's working out for me. I love that. And I love you. You're one of my favorite people in the industry. Ah. So much for coming on the show, for sharing your sparkle with us today. How can people find you? Oh, um, yeah, I, I'm on, I'm on social media usually just to promote when I've got a film coming out. Um, but it's, uh, my handle is, uh, mad hat 31, um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I've got an IMDB page that you can look at. Um, I've got a website, madisonhatfield.com <laughs> and, uh, do I update it? you'll see. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just catch me on TV sometimes commercials occasionally, you know, I'm, I'm around. Um, and if anybody, uh, would like to read Harriet the first, uh, I'm very, uh, open-handed with that script. So I'm, I'm more than happy to share that with, um, you know, the folks in the business school here, but you know, beyond I would, you know, it, she, I love her. Uh, she's, I love she's her. one of my favorites. I love her. And let me just plug that for a second, because reading that script, I read it in one sitting, and was transported to a world that I never wanted to leave with people who I wanted to be friends with. And uh, my only complaint is maybe that it wasn't a novel so that I could have spent more time with them and with her and in that world. It is a fantastic script and one of my favorite scripts that I've read uh, in years. You have such a a live voice. You're so funny on the page. Uh, I just, yeah, poignant also deeply, deeply poignant. Um, you have the full range. Thank you. So, um, thank you for being on the show today. I so appreciate your time, Madison. We'll have you back. Yes. Thank you for having me. What an honor. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.